Well, good morning. Okay. So two years ago, almost to the day, my sister and her husband and their three girls went to China to get their daughter, their now daughter from Guangzhou Orphanage. And uh, they sent us, they're in Idaho right now, sunny Sun Valley, Idaho, for really the month of July. And they sent us a photo that I think we have up on the screen or, or can have up on the screen soon of the, their three girl, their four girls now, uh, of which one is Mia Grace. See if you can pick her out. Uh, they're all chomping on a watermelon, happy as clams, and hiking daily in the Idaho mountains. And, you know, it's just such a great example of what, of a, a large part, not perfect example, but a large part of what Paul's really getting at here uh, this morning. You know, they, she had no, nothing to do. Mia Grace had nothing to do with the fact that, that her parents sought her out knew the name they were going to give to her before they ever met her, came and found her, and really rescued her out of a life of, of being an orphan. And now she's eating watermelon. Uh, she's on vacation in Idaho for a month. She's part of a great family that loves her and loves the Lord. And she'll be well provided for for the rest of her life. Through no good of her own, but because they chose her. They chose to set their love on her. And that's really what Paul's saying here. Paul's uh, gives us he talks about how he encountered the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, um, despite himself. Despite his best efforts to resist, God chose Paul. Um, it had nothing to do with his own goodness. It was all, it was all God. And, and what I want to extrapolate from that this morning is that Paul's story, though unique because he was an apostle, is really the story of every child of God. So he starts off by talking about how the fact, the fact that he received his message from Jesus Christ. And so he's validating, we looked at last week at, at the beginning of Galatians, and, and he really comes out swinging, as we talked about. And he's saying, look, this isn't a message I fabricated, it's a message I received. And in fact, from whom did I receive it? I received it from God himself. I received it from Jesus Christ. And it was validated, he goes on to say, and then we'll go on to say more next week in Galatians 2, in, in that part of the letter, it was validated by the other apostles. But the main thing is that it was given to me by God. And so he comes out saying that in verse 11, how the gospel comes, point one as we jump in. It's not man's gospel. It's not something I fabricated. It's not me. It's not something I and a few buddies got other, other fellow Jews that had been studying for, for all of our lives got together and, and, and worked up even from the Old Testament, okay? It is the fulfillment of God's word and it was given to me by God himself. So, you know, Paul had been studying, and we'll get to this more, he'd been studying God's word, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Old Testament, all of his life. But he'd never seen its main message, which is Messiah. He'd never seen what it had to say until God himself came to him and opened his eyes and opened his heart through no good of his own. So he says, he starts off by saying, look, this is how the gospel comes. It comes from God to man, not from man to man. And that's true of every single, every single one of us. Now, most of us, if you wanna read about his conversion, Acts 9, most of us aren't on a donkey and get knocked off the donkey and you know, have this bright light shone in, in our eyes and go blind, consequently, and led to another town. But we are all given the gospel, which comes from God, which is good news from God to us by God himself. 
even if it's through a human intermediary. In this case, it wasn't for Paul, which is one of the reasons it was, it was unique. Um, so he says in verse 12, it wasn't received by me from, from a man, it was revealed by Christ. And this is the way, I just wanna point out briefly in this first brief point, this is the way divine revelation works. Okay, true divine revelation works. If we are to know God, friends, if we're to know God intimately, relationally, savingly, he must reveal himself to us. He must take the initiative. And that he has done consummately through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He, he does it with his people throughout the Old Testament and then he comes himself, shockingly, even though the Old Testament foretells it in the person of Jesus. We can't get to him because of our sin, because of the problem that we've created, because of our rebellion. He can't look on sin and we've made ourselves absolutely incapable of finding him. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, Paul says in another, in another letter to the Ephesian church. If we're to know God, he must take the initiative. He must come down. He must condescend. All other false religions, and there's only one true religion, and it's the religion that Paul is preaching here that gives us the gospel, the religion of Christianity, the Judeo-Christian faith revealed to us through the scriptures which point us to Jesus. All other false religions are fundamentally ascending, ascending in their character. Um, so to take just a couple of many, 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 many examples, let's look at Islam briefly and Mormonism. So they both came after Christianity. They sound similar in a lot of ways. And so just based on those two things, our suspicion is, but they're fundamentally different too. Our suspicion is that they're imitations, okay? Satan is the great imitator. He can't create anything out of nothing like God has, but he takes what God makes and he perverts it and he twists it. He loves to do that. And um, so we already have a suspicion based on the, just the historical nature of these two religions. And when you begin to look at them, it's confirmed that the, the character of these, both these religions is they're, they're ascending. They are man trying to do certain things a certain way to get to God, um, to clean oneself up, to live a good life, to obey these rules, and whether it's a, a world system, philosophy, or religion, it's always gonna be, if it's not the true revealed faith, ascending, us trying to get to God in our own strength somehow, with our brains, with our bodies, with our good conduct. Um, and so both of these religions, though, they claim that God came down and gave his revelation, right? So in the case of Islam, that it came down... Um, basically through mechanical dictation to, uh, to Muhammad in a cave through maybe angelic mediaries. Um, and in the case of Mormonism, on golden tablets to Joseph Smith somewhere in upstate New York. Uh, but, so that's the claim that it's descending, right? That it's condescending, God coming down and giving us a deposit of what we need. Here's how to know me. But if you look at both religions, ascending in their character, in their attempts to know God, they, they claim to be condescending, but they're actually do this, do that, live this way, and then maybe. And there's no assurance. And, it, and in that sense, it just levels them with all the other world systems. But Christianity's different. The gospel that Paul has received, not gotten from man, but from God, and that God has actually brought through the person of his son is utterly different. It claims to be condescending. It claims that God has come to us through his grace and made himself known to us through no good of our own. But then, the message, the character of the gospel is consistent with that. It also says, look, God has done everything necessary for your salvation. It's a substitute religion. You can't 
get up to God. You can't come up to him. You're blind. You're dead in your sins. You have rebellious and hard hearts. Every single person because of the sin problem. And so what God did is he, he came down in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he lived the life that we can't live but are required to live to be with God, a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And then he took our place on the cross, a life, uh, excuse me, a death that, that we deserve, paid the penalty that we deserve to pay before a just God who can't just sw- uh, sweep sin aside, but it has to be paid for. It has to be paid for somehow. So Jesus stepped in and took our place and paid for that. So in that sense, it's a condescending religion. God has come to us and he's taken care of the problem. And in so doing, he draws us up into fellowship with him. So it's utterly different in the way that it talks about itself and in the way that it demonstrates itself. It's, that's how the gospel comes. And briefly to point to what the gospel is. What the gospel is, if you look in 12, 12b at the end of that verse, verse 12, what the gospel is, Paul says, that what I received, I received what? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And again, if you wanna kind of read more about that encounter, it's recorded in Acts, the book of Acts chapter nine, his encounter with the living Christ on the road to Damascus. But he says, I received what I did through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's my question. That little preposition, it just boils down to a preposition, that word of, a revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek can mean either of or from. A revelation from, was it a revelation from Jesus that Paul received that was the gospel that he's now delivering to the Mediterranean world that sets the Mediterranean world aflame? Or is it, is it um, of Jesus Christ himself? Is it content? Is the gospel content, information, data? Or is it a person? Okay, is it from Jesus, information from Jesus? Or is it the revelation is of Jesus Christ himself. Well, the answer is yes. The answer is both. It's, the Greek can read either way. And, and, and the gospel is information. It's what I just stated. It's that we can't get to God because of the sin problem. He owes us nothing, yet despite ourselves, he calls some of us through the mystery of his good pleasure and divine will to himself, and he makes that possible through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, the gospel is that information, but more, it is that information that takes us to that person, Jesus. The gospel is Jesus Christ. In the end, it's not, it is a credo, but it's not just a creed, a set of beliefs, a way of life, an example to follow, a philosophy. The gospel is a person. The gospel is God doing everything necessary to bring us from death to life into intimate knowledge with him, to life with him through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He makes us qualitatively new, sons and daughters, what we were made for. And until we find that relational, existential change, that reality, that until we are made alive to God and realize that we were made to be his sons and daughters and that can take place through the person of Jesus Christ, through knowing God through Jesus, we're lost and nothing else in life is going to make sense because we were made for that. Again, it's like, I've used this illustration before, but it's like putting milk in your gas tank. It's not made for that, it's not gonna run. It's made for gas. And when you put gas in the gas tank, the car runs. We were made to run on intimate, soul-satisfying fellowship with a person, with a tri-personal God, and Jesus Christ himself makes that possible. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. It's not just information. 
to person. Okay, and finally, point three, um, how the gospel comes, what the gospel is, and then called by God. This is really what Paul majors on in this text. Called by God. It's Paul's story of coming to faith, of having his eyes opened, of being turned completely through no good of his own, to his surprise, to his shock. And it's our story too. So let's press into that some. Paul begins his story in verse 13. He says that, he says, hey, I was persecuting, I was violently persecuting the church. Okay, right there in his language, one thing we can see is that the church is people. And we say this all the time here, we remind ourselves of this. The church, in our parlance in America, we talk about church in such a way that it's a place, it's a building, let's go to church. Are you going to church? Okay, the church is, and sometimes that's just convenient shorthand. But the church is a people. Paul's not persecuting a building. He's very aware that the church is the people of God, the family of God, the children of God, made such by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, I was persecuting that church. And look at, look at how he talks about it too. He says, I was persecuting what? The church of God. Whose are we? Whose is the church? The church is God's. The church is God's own prized possession that he has bought with his, the precious blood of his own son. He has dearly bought you. If you have trusted in Christ, you are his and you are valuable to him. No matter what you're going through in life right now, you may be tempted to think if you're on the skids and things are tough and you're getting ground down right now, you may be tempted to think, and you probably have thought, and you might think again, man, God doesn't care about me. If he did, this wouldn't be happening. Just a reminder here, you are God's. He has paid the highest price to you. His son crushed on the cross so that you could be saved is what he thinks about you. That's how highly prized you are. Let that sink in, whatever you're going through right now. You are God's. The church is God's. It is the apple, one of the prophets tells us. The people of God are the apple of his eye, his pupil. And when the church is touched, when the church is persecuted, God feels it personally. What did he say to Paul on the road to Damascus? He said, why? Paul was persecuting the church violently, as he says here in verse 13. What does Jesus say, though? Why are you persecuting my church? No, he says, Paul, Paul, or Saul, 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 Paul's former name. Why are you persecuting what? Me. Salvation is us being united in intimate communion with the living God, of which sex in marriage is the closest picture we have in this life. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, another letter to another church, right? Man, when, when we're touched, when we're affected, when we're hurting, when we're rejoicing, God feels it because Jesus has connected us now to God and he prizes us. So Paul says, what? I tried to destroy it. Emphasis on tried. Tried to destroy this church, this people of God. But the fact is he couldn't do it. He was unsuccessful. Why? Because Jesus says, on this rock, he says to Peter, on this rock, Peter, on this confession of what you just said, that I am the living God come to save you, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why can't the church be destroyed? Why couldn't Paul destroy it? Why can't uh, Muslim hordes today, why, why can't our own unfaithfulness, most of all, the, the church's own hypocrisy and incompetence, why, the fact that the church still exists after 2,000 years of hypocrisy, sinfulness, and incompetence is proof, I think, that it is something special to God and that it is inviolable in a sense and that it is, 
imperishable, maybe would be a better word, imperishable, because Christ has connected it to himself. He calls the church his own body. You can't kill the church because you could kill the church if you could kill Jesus, because Jesus has connected himself to his church, vitally united to him. And we tried to kill Jesus, and it didn't work. He died, and he was in the ground for three days, and then he rose. He rose to a new type of life that those who trust in him will follow. We will, we will also be bodily resurrected as he was if we have trusted in him. And uh, he's the living one. He is reigning now. He will return. He is our vital union. The church cannot be destroyed. Paul tried it. Others have tried it. Others will try it. It won't happen. That is a great hope for us, regardless of our circumstances. Verse 14, moving along. Paul talks about how he persecuted the church, and then he pivots and he says, man, I was also zealous for the tradition of my fathers. I was super religious, super religious. I got all the gold stars in Sunday school. I knew all the answers. Paul had a huge chunks of the Old Testament memorized, more than any of us ever will, almost a guarantee, a dead guarantee. He knew God's word. But what does he call it? He calls it tradition. He says, he doesn't say I was zealous for the words of, word of God or even zealous for God. He says, I was zealous for tradition. Tradition is from men. Yes, sister, call back. That's what I'm talking about. Don't be afraid to call back, people. I know we're reformed, but okay. Frozen chosen, you can get, you can get warmed up a little bit. Um, thank you, Kinsey. Um, okay, the, the tra- tradition is from men, but the gospel that Paul has received, he's received from God himself. The gospel is from God. It comes from God to us. Man, you can look around the universe, and Paul says in Romans 1, another letter to another church in Rome, he says in Romans 1, you could see everybody in the world, even if they don't know the gospel, they can see all sorts of stuff about God, his power, his beauty. And I was listening to TED Talk last night on, on deep space and, and just how massive the universe is and stars, it's just unreal. It's unreal, God's power. You can look at that. You could look at aphids crawling across a rosebud or dew in the morning or a rose petal or a sunset and just see, yeah, see beauty. Seriously, she's great. See beauty all over the place. God's beautiful He's, he's powerful, but you cannot see that the way to be reconciled to God is through his own son whom he sent to live in our place and to die in our place. You can't see that. That's the gospel. That's not revealed in creation. It's revealed to us through God's holy writ, through scriptures that point us to a person, to Jesus Christ. Um, it's from God, Okay. Now, when Paul says, hey, I pursued religion zealously, I pursued tradition zealously, um, and that was from men. Okay, that's, he contrasts, that's a direct contrast to the way he starts this passage out by saying, hey, the gospel, though, that I've received that's changed me, it's a person, and it came to me from Jesus Christ himself. That's from God. Tradition's from men. That's a, contra- a sharp contrast that Paul wants us to see in this passage. Um, my former tradition to which I tenaciously clung was from men. This isn't. I wanna, I wanna submit that in this verse, verse 14, it's a great crystallization of just all of human effort trying to get to God. He just wraps that up in saying, look, I did my utmost. I did everything, even with the very revelation of God in the scriptures of the Old Testament. I did everything I could to get to God through my own strength, through my own goodness, through my own intelligence, through my own zeal, and it cannot be done. On the contrary, it ended up in me 
being accomplice to murder of God's own children to whom he has united himself. That's where religion gets us, worse than nowhere. That's where human effort to get to God on our own fuel, on our own fumes gets us, worse than nowhere. That is part of Paul's gospel, the good news. We can't do it. That's, that's part A of the good news is we cannot get to God on our own. But he has chosen to come to us, okay? Um, so one of the reasons that it's so hard for us to get this is partly because we're fundamentally opposed to God because of sin, because of the sin problem. And when he comes to us, what do we wanna do? We wanna crucify him. But also because we, when we think about things that are dear, that are costly, that are worthwhile, that, that we get in this life, we usually don't get them for free. We have to work hard for them. But the gospel goes to shake our hands and punches us in the stomach. It's a complete reversal and it assaults our pride. And it assaults just the normal way that we see things done in this world that are worth getting. But if you think about love, to take but one example, something that is worth more than anything else in all of creation. You know, I think there's a verse in Song of Solomon where Solomon says, you can give all that you have for love and still it's not enough. There's nothing more precious than the love of a person given. And that is something that is freely given. You can't buy love. If you're buying love, friend, (laughs) you're in the wrong place and it ain't love. Okay, it's a perversion. Love must be freely given. Um, And so the gospel is a picture of God lovingly giving himself to us through no good of our own. And it's humbling. Again, it it squelches our pride. It assaults our pride. And and it also assaults our control of God. Because if all the rest of the world religions are essentially, God, I will do these things you require and then you must. In a sense, we don't say the second part, but then you must do as I require. I'm gonna bless you a little. I'm gonna give you this as long as you give me that. It's a bartering system. But God says that's not the way to know me. That's false religion, that's, that's anti-gospel. I do it all, I buy you at the precious cost of my son. You are my own and your rights are now forfeit and I will set my love upon you and I will love you and I will lavish myself, I will lavish my love upon you. Um, so this is, it's a humbling thing, it gets rid of pride, the gospel does, it gets rid of control, okay? We are God's bought and paid for. Um, but look, if you look at, again, these verses 13 and 14, um, you'll notice that, again, Paul talks about, in verse 13, throwing pres- Christians in prison. He's hate-filled, he's murdering, he's an accomplice to murder. Um, our bad works keep us from God. I think everyone would admit to that. Like, if they even believe in a God, they would probably agree that, yeah, bad, bad things keep us from God if he exists at all. And Paul shows that in verse 13. But also he assaults something that is an edifice that we often don't realize, which is that our good works keep us from God too. And that's really what he pivots to in verse 14. He was zealous for all these good things, for religious tradition, for even the revelation of God, for Israel being God's prized possession. And the church was bringing all these non-Israelites in to the fold and saying, these are God's people too through this guy, Jesus, who died on the Roman cross. And he's saying, man, the church is being the church is being dirtied, it's being sullied, it's, it's purity is being, uh, he's saying Israel, God's people is being, is being assaulted. No, it can't be. Um, but, and so that's in, in his effort, that was his good work to purify Israel, God's people. In going after that, 
purity, he was actually assaulting God. He was becoming an enemy more and more and more of the living God. So in short, to boil it down for us, we, I say this a lot, but we need to, from this text and so many others, as a people, be a people who constantly, in light of the gospel, repent, yes, of the things that we do that are bad, that we know are wrong, that, um, that displease God, that are you know, committing adultery, stealing, lying, cheating, uh, thinking a lustful thought, being dishonest. So many things, I could go on and on and on, right? But also we need to repent of our, of our good works, of our zeal, of anything that we do that is our effort to try to get to God on our own strength, rather than realizing he has done everything necessary in believing on Christ believing on Christ and living in that righteousness that God provides through his son. So repenting of our, being a people who repent of our bad works, but also of our good. Religion will keep us farther from God often than falling down dead drunk in a ditch. Because often the alcoholic knows he has a problem, but the religious person is puffed up often with his own sense of ability or her own sense with conceit, thinking that he is making his way to God when in fact God says, no, you're just like Paul murdering Christians, throwing them in prison. It can never be enough. So Paul's good and bad works are all bankrupt, is what he's saying. And they led him not to God, but away from God. In trying to obey God, Paul found that he was actually attacking God. And then he sets us up for the zinger in this text, for the big pivot. Verse 15, look at it with me. He says, but God. Paul has some big buts in in his Letters in Romans, there's a big butt. In Romans 3.21, and, and here there's a big butt. And there, he has some big pivots, some big butts. And this is a big, a big butt. It's a glorious and a grace-filled butt. Quote me on that. You can tweet that. I heard somebody chuckling. Yeah, that was somewhat intentional. Thank you. How much did Paul have to do with God? If I read verse 15... But when he, so he's just talked about all of his good efforts and bad efforts. None of them got him closer. They moved him farther and farther and maybe you identify with that in whatever way. Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And he goes on. How much did Paul have to do with God's intervening in calling Paul to himself? Not only he had nothing to do with it, but he had less than nothing to do with it because he was offending God in every possible way. He was making himself an enemy of God, and that's the gospel. That's what we have done. That's the first part of the good news. That's the bad news that makes the gospel good news. We have to get that. If we don't get that, we can never understand and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, he did nothing, less than nothing. Think of the Ferran twins, okay, to keep, it, to keep in line with what's happening in our church and with what Nathaniel prayed for. You know, they're in Ashley's womb, they're resting, she's resting, kind of to her chagrin right now, in prison in that hospital room, but safe. They're sitting in there, gestating, growing, feeding, God be praised, the blood's flowing. You know, uh, what are they doing to, the minute they, the minute they come out of the womb and they're born, they're gonna be, there's gonna be so much lavish love poured out on them by their parents, grandparents, the church. Man, we've been praying for y'all. How much have they done? Will they have done to receive that? 
nothing. Nothing. They've done nothing to receive that love. Nothing at all. And this is the case and more with Paul and with us. If God has chosen to call us into his love and to himself. In Romans 9, 11, Paul says that before Jacob and Esau were born, before they were born and had done nothing, either good or bad, God chose one of them, okay? He chose Jacob. And it says, Esau I have hated. And that's a comparative thing. Esau, he did not choose to set his love upon. He blessed Esau and made him a great people, but he chose one of them. Was that because Jacob was the best? No, Jacob, the name means deceiver. Jacob was horrendous. And that's kind of part of the point. And Paul's saying, hey, so was I. And he's saying, extrapolate. God has a penchant for choosing really terrible people, really sinful people. Why? In part, because it gives him more of the glory. We can't take credit for it. So if you are a Christian, you've been walking with God for some time, and you're tempted to take pride in the fact that you are God's own, just remember this. Let it humble you that maybe it's because you were so egregiously terrible and sinful that God chose you. To God be the glory. We get none of it. We get none of it. Those Ferran twins will have no, they will not have earned a bit of that love, but they will get so much of it. And so it is with God and those whom he chooses. Um, Two things in verse 15 show that it was God, not Paul. He says what? He says, first, God set me apart before I was even born, as we just talked about. Um, That word means to set apart from a group, to choose one thing or a small group, or the group of things apart from the rest. So I get the picture of, Someone, it means also to, to draw a line between one thing and others, to choose the, thing, the things on this side of the line and to reject the things on the other side of the line. Okay, so if you want a picture, a picture of, I don't know, we all kind of have seen scenes in the movies or whatever of thieves or I don't know, someone getting a bag of jewels and like pouring them out on a wood table and then he's with a, some, a group of people and he puts his, the, the knife you know, of his hand, the blade of his hand through the coins or the jewels or the treasure and he kind of does that and, he, and then he says, that's all for you guys or that's for you, partner in crime. And then he pushes the other bit over and he says, and that's mine. And that's the picture that this word gives. That's what Paul's saying God does. Through his own good pleasure, through no good of our own, he puts his hand down the middle and he says, nope, and yes, these I'm calling, these I'm setting my love on. Again, it's a mystery. It's never really explained, but it's certainly very clearly explained that it's not through our own efforts. It's because God has chosen to lavish his love upon some through the person of Jesus. He didn't have to. By our own deserts, we would all perish. We would all be dead in our sins and trespasses. We would get what we deserve, but Jesus took what some of us deserve. And for those of us that he took that penalty, at some point we will see Christ. We will trust in him. We will love him and we'll be saved, but it's not because of anything we've done. So set apart for, set apart for what? God himself, yes, set apart for God himself, but also for a task, for a mission. Um, Paul was set apart, he says, if I can read the rest of the verse, 16, he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might, what, preach him among, that I might preach Christ among the Gentiles. And then he goes on to say, I did not immediately consult with anyone, and that's pretty much the rest of our text. And we'll finish with that. But 
He says, look, God set me apart for his own delight to be his child, but he also set me apart for good works. He also set me apart for a mission, for a task that he had in mind for me. And it's just a strange deal if we just pause for a second here and think about the fact that he set Paul apart to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to not Jews, but to non-Jews chiefly. Paul is known as the missionary of the Gentiles. And he spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel chiefly to Gentiles, to Greeks, to anyone that was not a Jew. And it's just ironic because Paul was the ultimate Jew. He was the uber Jew. He was the Jew of Jews. He talks about that in other places. He had the best Jewish education. He sat under the number one, it's like, it's like going to Harvard and sitting under the number one professor. He did that under a guy named Gamaliel and he had the best, most elite core training, which is why he ended up being such a purist and such a zealot for the tradition of the Jews, of his fathers. Paul uses this uber Jew, this Jew of Jews to reach Gentiles. Only God can do, he, God just turns something on its head and nothing is wasted. Think about, and when Paul gets into this, he, he removes himself after encountering the living God and he goes to a quiet space and we're gonna finish with that in a little bit. He goes to a quiet space that he calls Arabia for years. And, he, and, he, and God uses what Paul knew, which is essentially the whole Old Testament. Paul is intimately familiar with God's uh, revelation, written revelation. And with his knowledge and now with the person of Jesus Christ, the very gospel inside of him, living in him, speaking to him, writing the words that he had known here upon his heart. Paul sees the mystery, what he calls the mysterion, the mystery that was in the Old Testament but that nobody really saw. Really until Paul encounters the living Christ, pulls away to Arabia and sees, oh my dear God, this God who has saved the Jews has not saved the Jews just for the Jews. He saved the Jews for the nations. The Jews are not a period, they're a colon. They're not a stop, they are a conduit to reach the rest of the world. God has saved this unique people uh, to bring Messiah through them to save any man, woman, and child of any nationality who will come to him by faith. And it's because Paul knows the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures that were bequeathed to, given to them as an oracle, Romans 9, entrusted to them, that he, once he has Christ inside of him, the hope of glory, his eyes are open and he's able to see as he pulls away over years, as he pours over what he already knew. This is the mystery. This is the mystery. God has come for everyone and he's doing it through this unique, this little people. The very thing I was trying, I was, I was working so hard in my flesh, in my own efforts to destroy the church being more than just Jews is actually the very thing that God called the Jews to. You see the, how Paul went from knowing something yet being completely blind to its contents to when he encounters the living God and the Holy Spirit comes into his life and makes him alive, all of a sudden he sees what his eyes have been seeing but his mind and his heart did not understand. Only God can do this. Only God can do this. And with God, nothing is wasted. He will use, again, Paul was using all this for vitriol to kill God's people. In our own way, we will do this. We will assault God, even, though, even if we don't mean to and don't know that we're doing it. Paul had the best of intentions, he later says in later, book of, later chapters of Acts. But he was assaulting God himself and God's church. Um, God 
in his economy, nothing will be wasted um, for those whom he has set his love upon that have come to him through the person of Jesus Christ, that have set their faith on Christ. He is in the business of taking all the raw material of our rebellion and using it for good and for blessing. So a couple examples in the Bible. The Bible's rife, rife with these examples. I mean, it's almost the entire scripture is a picture of this. Um, Joseph, at the end of Genesis, the last 14 chapters of Genesis, um, the story of Joseph, he's hated by his brothers. He's the youngest dude, and he gets this, I mean, terrible parenting, right? His dad gives him a special coat. The The other brothers are wearing brown, and he gets like a technicolor coat. Are you kidding me? You're gonna get pounded, son. That's what happens. And he, what's more, he comes and says, hey, I had a dream, and you guys, guess what? You're worshiping me, and it's sweet. I loved that dream. And they're like, hey, guess what? Uh, and they throw him in a well, and they sell him to traders, Midianite traders that are heading to Egypt. So they sell Joseph, their brother, and they stage his death, and then they say, hey, Dad, sorry, uh, this blood, we found his, his technicolor coat, that awesome coat that you got him. It was on the shrubs, and there's blood on it, so somebody probably killed him, sorry. And they stage his death, and they sell him to slave, to, uh, slave traders, and he ends up in Egypt, and then he gets betrayed by his master's wife, even though he's resisting her temptations, and he gets thrown in jail for that, again, framed, and then he basically rotting in jail, and all that time, God is setting him up to save. He's delivered out of jail. He becomes the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on the face of the planet, and he saves not only Egypt, and not only a good part of the Mediterranean rim, but God's own people, his own family. And he says at the end, moral of the story, Aesop's fable, what's the point of this story? At the end of this pericope, of this long passage of Joseph, he says in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, brothers, in selling me, and what happened to me that was evil, God intended and is using now for good. And that's what God does. Moses in Exodus, same thing. He's also educated in Egypt a few years later and at the Harvard of of the ancient Near East and he murders a man thinking that God is calling him to save his own Hebrew people and he flees into the desert for what? 40 years he pushes sheep around with a stick. He thinks his life is over and when he's 80, God comes to him in fire and he says, now it's time. And he sends Moses back, an old man who's been humbled, who no longer thinks he's gonna save anyone, who when God uses him, gets all the glory, who's a perfect mediator between Egypt and, he, and the Hebrews. He speaks both languages, okay? His pride's been devastated and utterly reduced. He's the perfect man now. God has used all of that for this moment to use Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. Um, same thing with David. He's anointed king, and then what happens? He runs for his life for 10 years. Hey, you're anointed king. Thank you, God. The king starts throwing javelins at him, trying to take his life every other day. He's just constantly running in the hills of Judea for the next 10 years, fighting for foreign armies. And all that time, God is training him, training him to be a man after God's own heart so that when he becomes king, he will reign as the one from whom the Messiah will come. And finally, um, it, you know, Jesus is the ultimate picture of this, isn't he? The very mechanism, the, the very crystallized picture of our hatred for God in our flesh, our attempts to get to God, our hatred of him outright, is the cross. 
God comes to us in the person of his beloved son and how much are we opposed to him? The cross much. You look at the cross, you see our opposition to God and he uses that very hatred of him as the mechanism to save us. Surprise, I died in your place. I used all of your hatred to save you and now anyone can come who just trusts in me and not in themselves, anyone at all. God used our killing his own son to open up a portal to life through death. Only God can do that and he's in the business of using anything and everything in your life to draw you to him, to save you, to set your love upon, to set uh, his love upon you, um, to use the things that you've been doing for years on your own for his glory, for his purposes. Um, C.S. Lewis, to use a more recent example, and you know I have to mention him in the sermon, so it's gonna, it's gonna come. Um, C.S. Lewis, he was, a, he was an atheist. By the time he was seven, he lost his mom, and that, in, in part, caused a hard place in his heart, and he... Uh, by the time he was 16 or so, certainly he was an avowed atheist, and earlier than that, actually. And he spent three years in high school with a private tutor that he called the great knock, Kirkpatrick. And this man was an avowed atheist and had a lot to do with C.S. Lewis's atheism. And this man, he was a ruthless logician. There are great stories about conversations that he and Lewis had initially, at least. And uh, he, he required Lewis to think logically, to speak logically, to back up and defend everything he said. And C.S. Lewis used that for years to discount Christianity until one day God came and through no good of Lewis's own saved Lewis. And he calls himself the most reluctant and dejected convert in all of England, almost against my will. He says, I've never felt more compelled and I've never felt more free than the minute that I trusted in God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. You ever felt that way? I've never felt more compelled. I had nothing to do with it. I've never felt more free, liberated to believe on the beautiful person of Jesus Christ. And God uses all of that training that was used to assault him to really affect millions and millions and millions upon millions of people to help them come to God and see that you don't have to check your brains in the door to be a believer, to believe on God. Um, Lewis has been one of the most, maybe the most uh, effective Christian faith defenders, apologists, um, and Paul says in verse 15, he says what? He called me by his grace, not by my grace, not by my work. It's not my work, it's his work for me. Again, my, my old professor, Mike Kruger, saying, we are saved by works. We are saved by work, yes or no? And the answer is yes, but it's by the work of God on our behalf through Jesus Christ. Nothing that we've done or can do. That's what grace is. So Paul is saying, he called me by his grace, by his merit, by his work. Um, you know, the picture that he's painting is not, um, hey, of God saying, hey, I'm looking down and seeing that Paul's a decent guy. He's really memorized a lot of the scripture. That's really good, gold star there. Um, I like a lot of what he's doing. He's a nice one. No, he's doing some good stuff. On the contrary, Paul paints the opposite picture. He was aiding and abetting the murder of God's own people. He was called against his will, as it were, but by God's grace. It was God's work, not Paul's, quite apart from anything that Paul had done, was doing, get this, or would do. Now, Paul would end up doing much for the sake of God that glorified God, but that wasn't a condition for his salvation. It was a product of. And you know, this is the very pattern that God has set up in the whole Old Testament, something Paul didn't see until Jesus came and met with him and changed him. 
It's the very pattern that God set up with his, by choosing his people, the Jews. They were spectacularly weak and sinful. That's the whole story of Genesis 12 through the last prophet. Almost the entire Old Testament is the story of Israel being a catastrophic, spectacular failure. And that's, that's who God chose. Okay, um, if you read Deuteronomy 7, Verses seven and eight, he said, the Lord did not, Moses says to Israel, the Lord didn't set his affection on you. Hey, don't get pompous, Israel. Don't get all proud because you're God's people. The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because it was the Lord who loved you. The reason then that Israel was loved is not because she was lovely, but because God was and that he chose to delight in Israel and to set his love upon that people and his love made them lovely. He chooses, here's the thing, we think somehow that he's gonna shift the way that he chooses. He, he, that's the pattern, that's the way God works. He is faithful, we are unfaithful. He chooses unfaithful people. He chooses unlovely people and he makes us faithful. He makes us lovely through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He does the same exact thing today and this is really good news and here, let me just give you a few reasons why. Because we haven't earned God's love if he set his love upon us, we can't lose it based on bad performance. He didn't pick us based on good performance. We were bad performers to start with. Maybe that's one of the reasons he chose us because we were so egregiously terrible, like I said earlier. This is what grace means. It means undeserved favor. You don't deserve it, I don't deserve it. Like any child with a loving parent. Your parent doesn't love you because of how great you are when you're tiny. They just set their love upon you because you're their child. That's the way God chooses to love us. Secondly, it's good news because we know that God's not trying to get something from us in sort of a using us kind of way. I see how useful you can be to me, or my, you're very beautiful. Hmm. No, God, that's not what God does. But he isn't cold toward us either. He loves us deeply with an ironclad faithfulness, despite our wavering, despite our faithfulness, despite our sin. And he makes us faithful, and he makes us lovely. In short, it's the love that we've been searching for all our lives. It's the, it's, it's, it's the reason behind, it's the impetus, it's the driving force, it's the elastic energy. To use a phrase from Robert Louis Dabney, it's the elastic energy that drives, that powers everything we look for in life, everything that we do. It's the love that we are constantly looking for and crave, the love that we were made for. The love of God that calls us to himself through no good of our own, despite our rebellion against him, get this, means that he knows the worst of us, the real us that we hide from everyone else. What, if, what do I do when people come to my house? I clean. I throw dirty stuff in the closet. That's what I do pretty much when I see anyone that's not my wife, because my wife knows the real me and it ain't pretty. I throw the dirty stuff down here, the repository, all the stuff that's sunk down because it's nasty, into the closet and I put on my best appearance. God pushes past that. He sees right down to our nasties, beyond what even we see, and he loves us anyway with a perfect, unfailing love that's invincible. That is very good news. That is very good news. This love he sets upon us, it means that we will not remain unlovely. We are fully known and fully loved, but 
but not left where we've been found. Not at all. He will finish the work that he started in us. This is not as good as it gets. And the light grows brighter and brighter by degrees until that final day that we see him face to face. And again, we we must repent of our bad works, but also of our good. Keller writes it this way. He says, the gospel calls us out of religion as as, as much as it calls us out of irreligion. So you might be secular humanist, you might be uh, super religious. God calls us out of both of those things. We see that in Paul's story to himself, to Jesus, who condescends. There's no ascension unless it's God bringing us to himself through his work. So two examples of that. He says, uh, sorry, not he says, so an upstanding citizen, someone who's a good citizen, he's a good husband, he's a good father. Reverse it if you wanna think about a woman being a good mother, she's a good wife. Um, he's a deacon, maybe he's an elder, maybe he's made it to the session, all right? He does occasional community service. Overall, he's given a positive lift. He's a contributor to society. And he's relying on his own record and resume to get him to God. You have another man who's a drug addict, beats his wife, he's divorced three times. He's a terrible father, and he's been in prison. Maybe he's still there. But in prison, or out of it perhaps, on parole, he repents. He says, man, I have messed up and I am a wicked man. He admits to God, I'm a sinner. Save me, Jesus Christ, son of God. The first man will die in his sins. The second will be saved because the first man has relied on his own merit and the second man on the merit of Jesus Christ. This, friends, is the gospel. And I wanna ask you, where do you stand? What picture do you fit into? Jesus has come for you. He is hung on a tree for you. He came from the riches of heaven for you. That's what was required. It's how much he loves you. He's finished the work. He is the gospel. I want you to consider coming to him today. Um, This should humble the believer, friends, and encourage the unbeliever. It should humble the believer because we know as believers that we owe nothing... Our salvation owes nothing to us, nothing to our goodness. And this doesn't end once we come to Christ. We don't come to Christ on Christ's merit and then start working on our own goodness to keep up. That's not the way it works. The gospel isn't the A to C of the Christian life. It's the A to Z, as Keller says. It's the A to Z. It's the start to finish, okay? It never starts becoming our own good work. It's resting in the finished work of Christ and letting that life, the life of God, flow through us. It's all grace. But it also should encourage you, if you are an unbeliever, this morning here with us. So glad you're here, if you're listening. It should encourage the unbeliever because it means that there's no one that's too far gone. Anyone can come because it's God who calls and it's God who's done the work. He's finished the work in Christ. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. This is the good news that should encourage the unbeliever and humble uh, the believer. I just wanna finish briefly with the last thing that Paul gives us, sort of. He says, look, he says, starting in verse 17 on through the rest of the passage, he says, um, I was pulled away. Uh, excuse me, he pulled himself away. He, he had his encounter with the living God. He went up to Jerusalem for a few days, and then what? He basically, he basically just fled northeast, probably to Nab- the Nabataean kingdom, northeast of Syria, of Palestine, into the desert there. There were some towns and cities, but it was a pretty desolate place. And he spent time alone there. Um, 
pouring over the scriptures that he had memorized, but that now were being written on his heart. The very word of God that had spoken those words through the prophets of old was now living inside of him, and he pulled away. And during that rich time, God was building a bomb that would explode onto the scene of the Mediterranean world years later and change the landscape forever. The world is not the same because of that time that Paul pulled away and meditated on and soaked in the new revelation and the person of God himself. And I just wanna say and extrapolate and then close, I wanna underscore the power of pulling away with the living God. As we focus on this call of Paul to be God's own and the call that God has on your life to be his own, the power of pulling away daily, that daily time with the living God, pulling away to a quiet place in his word, in prayer, meditating on him and on his beauty, reminding yourself of the goodness of the gospel. Weekly, having a day where you're not working, you're not doing whatever it is you do the other six days, but you're worshiping and you're resting and you're focusing on God. Monthly, hopefully having, having again some time that you set aside, monthly and then yearly, and then maybe multi-yearly. These sort of regular Sabbaths, that these signposts put down to pull away, to get away, to just be quiet, especially in this world, this buzzing world of cell phones and screens and interruptions and busyness for solitude, for meditation. There's so many studies on, forget Christian, Judeo-Christian, forget scriptures, forget God, forget the gospel, just studies on how solitude, especially in this day and age, and quiet and meditation are just so necessary for our constitution, for our health. And to feed on the living God and on his word and in prayer during this time, during these regular times, is, is what we were created for and allows us to go back into, not to be hermits, but to go back into the community that he's called us to and to be effective and to be powered with the living Christ and to be refreshed and to be a blessing to those that we pour out Christ onto in whatever we do. The cloister, time in the cloister, time in the closet, in the prayer closet, will allow us to be effective in the community that God's called us to. We see that here in Paul's life. Look at the huge effect. It seemed like a step back. Look at what Paul's done. We all know what he's going to do. What, you're going away for three years? What, seems kind of productive. But in soccer, you know, what happens? A lot of times they kick the ball back, away from the goal, just to get it forward. I mean, that's just the way life works oftentimes. And that's the way that the spiritual life has, is made to work. Jesus did it. Jesus pulled away when he was here. Don't you think that we should too? Um, I'm gonna close. I'm gonna close there. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for uh, setting your love upon us. I thank you that your love has nothing to do with our goodness, but you make us good. I pray that would humble the believer and encourage the unbeliever this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.